What's going on, everybody? I'm AJ. I'm your host of the Blue Degree Podcast. Thank you very much for sitting down to, and listening and watching whatever you're doing, wherever you're consuming your podcasts or YouTube or whatever. On this episode, I sat down with a representative from the organization, The Last Prisoner Project. The Mariah, who came on, sat on the show, brought me a bunch of really cool gifts. She brought me a book of all their constituents and explaining what The Last Prisoner Project is. And for those who don't know, and I didn't know until a couple of weeks prior to sitting down, with Mariah, is Mariah, uh, the Last Prisoner Project is an organization that is working on a daily basis to get people out of prison who are for cannabis charges on the federal side for the most part. They do a little bit of state work, but for the most side, for the most part, uh, their stuff is on the federal side. This is a very cool episode, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about uh, how many prisoners are still in prison for. There's a lot of nuance to their to their uh, cases. I understand that, but at the same time, they're in prison for using a substance that those of us in recreational states and medical marijuana states get to enjoy openly and freely. They're rotting in prison for many, many years. Some are in for life. I just wanted to thank the uh, founders of Last Prisoner Project for doing what they're doing. Uh, It's Steve D'Angelo, Andrew D'Angelo, and then Dean Rays. And again, I'm getting this all from their website, which you can go to at lastprisonerproject.org. And they have a ton of ambassadors for their for their organization uh jim belushi fab five freddy uh revolution the band they have actors actresses political activists um artists just a, a ton of people that are connected with this program because they believe in it so i hope we all learn something i hope we all come to an understanding of the fact that those of us who use a plant-based medicine should not be marginalized. Um, those who have used plant-based medicine should not have been marginalized. And those who use it recreationally, what's the difference? It's no, it's no different than alcohol. And actually, it's completely safer than alcohol. Personal opinion there, but science does back that up as well. So I hope we all listen, or I hope we all learn something from listening and have a little bit more understanding of the fact that A lot of these people are not criminals. A lot of these people do not belong to be in prison. And again, if we can come to an understanding of the fact that there's been a lot of bad data and a lot of bad science regarding cannabis, its uses, its medicinal benefits, and particularly its effects on the the body and mind, the human body and the human mind. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I highly, highly, highly encourage you to go to lastprisonerproject.org. And there is something that I want to press, and that is the fact that dispensaries can get on board with donating to the Last Prisoner Project. You know, you go to McDonald's, you order your food, and you can throw your change in that little Ronald McDonald House uh, uh, charity uh, bucket or whatever so that they can collect money for that. Well, guess what? You can do the same thing. Dispensaries can get on board with the Last Prisoner Project and do the same thing. And it's my understanding, as Mariah stated on the podcast here, that here in Arizona, Sunday Goods is doing that. So why aren't the rest of you dispensaries doing that? These are your customers. These are your clientele. These are people who could be coming and spending their money at your shops. And all we got to do is support them. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I hope we all have a good time and let me know what you think. Thank you very much. Take care. Perfect. All right. So we are live on everything. Everything is recording. We are good to go. 
So, all right. Please introduce yourself. Hello. Thank you for coming. Hello. I'm Mariah Daly. Thank you so much for having me, AJ. Um, I am our Criminal Justice Initiative Director. And our is the Last, last Prisoner, Prisoner Project. Project. All that's right. right. Um, LPP for short. Gotcha. Um, so that's our legal program, and I am the director of that. Okay. And so if you could just kind of give a little background. What is I, – I Googled and looked up and all that, but what exactly is – see, <laughs> something inevitably happens. I'll hit a button or something like that. So my pad has little things. My hand just hit on accident. We do that. I like that. That's a nice sound effect. <laughs> that's the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> so what is the Last Prisoner Project? Um, so the Last Prisoner Project is um, a 501c3 nonprofit, um, and we work to free cannabis prisoners and also to redress the past and continuing harms of unjust cannabis uh, criminalization. Okay. And how did this come about? How was the Last Prisoner Project started? So it was started in 2019 by Steve and Andrew D'Angelo, okay. our co-founders, um, and a a uh, veteran musician, someone in the music business who's Dean Rays. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Not with the name. What, what band are, are, are they with? Um, I just know he's a music vet. I think gotcha. he's more like production. Type, okay. But, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, he founded it in 2019. And so I've been with them since... Uh, 2020 okay i don't realize how much i say uh until you're like on the podcast and then i'm like uh, uh. and you got it stuck in your ears <laughs> yeah exactly that's all right don't worry about it <laughs> so yeah we got started in 2019 i've been there since 2020 um that was this is my first job out of law school okay so i'm not an attorney um so i'm i'm just directing i'm more on the operational side of things so what i do is i um, work with our partners at the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers okay. to assign pro bono assistance for clemency relief, okay. compassionate release, um, sometimes resentencing, and once they're out, early termination of supervised release. Okay. And we also work with attorneys on some state cases to do parole, um, resentencing, state clemency petitions, that sort of thing. Is it just here in Arizona? Because obviously we're here in Arizona, or is this all across the country? So we mostly do federal. Um, okay. I, we all, the, the whole team works from home. Um, we're spread out all over the place. Nice. We have someone in Hawaii. We have someone in New York, Connecticut, here in Louisiana. We have people all over the place, and we mostly do federal cases. But um, we also do uh, – D.C., Colorado, Virginia, and New York. For state, for state stuff? Yes, okay. for, um, at least for the legal representation. But we also have, and I have my little list here, we do policy. She came prepared. <laughs> we, have policy, we do policy work in um, California, Hawaii, Minnesota, New Mexico, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Connecticut. Okay. So we do to work in a lot of different states, even if it's not necessarily legal, because we have a few different programs that we operate within last prisoner project okay so but some of it is also dealing with uh, helping write state laws and stuff like that yes such as the organization i'm with arizona normal yes so, so gotcha. it's a three-prong approach it's intervention advocacy and awareness um so we have an advocacy team and that does like our socials um operates our letter writing guide um you know does storytelling our newsletter provides commissary money to our constituents okay. who are still incarcerated. Then we have legal program, which is what I just described. Okay. I'm the director of that. Um, and then we have re-entry, 
which is uh, we help with the job readiness program, help them reintegrate into society, give them grants. Um, and then the last one is policy. Okay. And that's where we um, get involved with sponsoring bills and we go testify in, in certain states and policies mostly um, their priorities are for resentencing and release of cannabis prisoners currently incarcerated which there are 40,000 and that's a minimal estimate that are currently incarcerated for cannabis in the United States right now 40,000 federally or uh, just oh, across everything the, across, across the country mm-hmm. okay so um and then the second priority is uh, record clearance, automatic record clearance. Expungements. For, yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So regarding the uh, the federal side of the house, um, is it is it just, it's not for possession, I'm assuming. I'm, I'm making the assumption. What, what are most of the people still in prison for cannabis in prison for? Is it sales? Is it What is it mostly for? So when we have people in, in federal prison for cannabis charges – there actually sometimes is a possession charge. The thing is that other charges get tacked on. You have to possess it in order to have possession with intent to sale. Mm-hmm. You, you always have that component right. of possession. Understood. Exactly. Understood. And then also if you're um, – they, they say – um, they throw on additional charges like operating a continuing criminal enterprise, um, uh, drug trafficking. If you have – even if you're not using the gun – like in a crime, if you have guns, like in a drug house, or something. Uh, drug, that's a uh, drug trafficking, possession of a firearm in furtherance of a drug trafficking crime. Gotcha. 924C, which is a <laughs> enhancement. Federal code. Yeah. And then we have conspiracy, you name it. RICO. You can, yeah, RICO. So once you have any of those predicate offenses, you can really just tack them on. And then there's also um, three strikes laws, depending on the state, habitual offender laws. Um, federally, there's, I, I don't know if you're, you're probably familiar with the U.S. sentencing guidelines. or Not particularly, because I wasn't federal. Okay. So I wasn't, I didn't do anything federally. I only turned a couple of cases over federally just a couple of times, but I, I wasn't heavily involved in the federal side. Gotcha. So um, the mandatory minimums after a case called Booker are no longer mandatory as long as you can the judge needs to be able to have an articulable reason for why they make an upward or downward departure and that can be their role in the offense did they cooperate with police how many how what was the weight of the drugs involved what kind of drug was it what's their prior criminal history what's um you know and then they also have to analyze factors like danger to the community that kind of stuff so in most of these cases, kind of a long way to answer your question, it's mostly either conspiracy for possession t- with intent to distribute, or if they have a possession, it's also tacked on with like a, like you said, like a RICO gotcha. or a continuing criminal enterprise, or even the people with the sentences that are, you're, who d- do have, um, that it just seems more of like a simple possession case. They get habitual offender. Oh, because, okay. Because uh, when they were 20 years old, they stole a Kit Kat bar from a store or whatever the case is. Right. Gotcha. And actually, they're all, so all of our constituents are nonviolent. Okay. No history of any violent convictions or sexual offenses. Okay. Um, and no other drugs involved in the underlying offense. So if they get caught for like marijuana and cocaine at this time, we're currently not taking on those cases. Okay. We're just doing primarily cannabis and not including 
synthetic cannabis either. Oh, okay, okay. No um, spice or K two. No, or I actually stuff. was reading that that's like pretty dangerous. So the, the spice I, and all that. Some of the worst instances of dealing with people when I was in law enforcement, it was when they were on spice. The most violent. This was not a smoke a little weed, get a little mellow, and go chill on her couch. These were people that were out of their freaking minds. That it took it took uh, a lot to get these people under control. It wasn't just a simple. You know, no, it was not nearly the same as cannabis. Isn't that so ironic? I was going to say funny, but it's not really funny. It's sad that the legal alternative, or they might have made it illegal, I think. But what, it was legal when I was in college. Right. That was the thing that athletes would do. Oh, really? Because they can't, they couldn't test for oh, it back okay. then. And all these athletes, like I, I knew a lot of like divers who would just smoke spice, like K2. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't know them to get violent, but... I mean, I do know someone who like had a seizure from it and I do know like it would make them really sick and, yeah. and freak out. And then the one that's illegal that they say is dangerous, <laughs> uh, reefer madness is actually zero deaths ever reported. That No violence connected. That's one of the things that I always make up or I, I always bring a point to the fact that even the Drug Enforcement Administration themselves in their book of drugs, their, their book of drugs, um, published online and go to DEA.gov and look it up It look up cannabis and it shows, you know, the hash and hash oil and this or that. It says right across the one of their things is no deaths have been reported at this time, strictly from ingestion alone. Obviously, there's been morons who have gotten high and then done stupid stuff, which has led to their death. But from ingestion alone and using cannabis alone, there's been no reported deaths ever. Isn't that wild? It's so wild. Have you ever talked with any of your guests on here about like the history behind how cannabis became illegal or anything like that? No, I've only read documentaries, which I ever heard documentaries. And I, one of them that's on Netflix was a fantastic one. So no, I have not. So that would be what interesting was the one to cover. On Netflix? Uh, I believe it was called The Grass is Greener. It had a Fab Five Freddy on it, which correct me if I'm wrong. I think he's an ambassador for Last Prisoner Project. I I, he, I think he might. We have so many ambassadors. I know. I, I was looking at that Jim Belushi. I, yeah, I wrote some of them down. Tommy Chung, yeah. Melissa Etheridge, Damien and Stephen Marley, Master P, Montel Williams, Slightly Stupid, Revolution. There's a ton of them. I'm yeah. a huge Damien Marley fan too. Yeah, cool. absolutely. No, but it, I believe it was called The Grass is Greener. And it very much did take a look at cannabis from uh, the black American perspective and the, the turning it... Uh, making it scary for the white man that, you know, black, see my phone went off. I told you it's going to be something that's my dumb ass. It does it every time. Um, but looking at it from, Oh, you know, the black man's gonna, you know, smoke this reefer and then come and steal all the white women. Like that was yeah. legitimately concerns back in the twenties and thirties. It's really crazy. So it actually, so cannabis was, it's been used for 5,000 years. Um, for medicinal therapeutic uses. And it was actually not until the 1910s during the Mexican Revolution, Mexican immigrants started to come into the United States and they brought cannabis with them. And they kind of, um, the government was associating it with these lower class working immigrants and were saying um, these Mexicans are gonna, you know, get, uh, get it said they're gonna give it they said, actually, uh, the majority of pot smokers are minorities. And, quote, it has a negative effect on the degenerate races. They said degenerate races. Um, I, I'm not laughing because it's not funny. I'm laughing at the 
just ridiculousness of it. Mexicans will distribute killer weed to unsuspecting school children. Mm. And uh, this is really bad. Reefers, wait, reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Who said that quote? Do you happen to know? I do. Harry Anslinger. Oh, well, Anslinger. Okay, there you go. Yep. And uh, this isn't a quote, but it just, they did talk about what you mentioned, that um, smoking pot will ruin a woman's white woman's virtue and they'll start having sex with black men <laughs> oh yeah where i don't know where they're where they're getting these crazy things so um th- yeah that was in 1930 when anslinger came along okay. for the u.s treasury department's head of bureau of narcotics and he th- that's where those statements were made um and then you had your propaganda films right. reefer madness uh you know, drug dealers are going to invite your teenagers to jazz parties and they're going to get them high and hooked on reefer. And, and listen to good music. Yeah. And eat some good food. Exactly. <laughs> and um, so he oversaw the passage of the Marijuana Tax Act of okay. 1937. And Slinger um, did. Mm-hmm. And um, so it actually got overturned later for being unconstitutional, but it was quickly replaced with uh, the Controlled Substances Act. Mm. Um, and... So the Schaefer Commission, so originally um, there was going to be, and there still is, I just hit the microphone. Uh, There's five schedules of drugs. And they were supposed to, as a temporary placeholder, place marijuana in Schedule 1, which is the worst, which is no currently accepted medical use, not safe safe even under supervision of uh, medical personnel, doctors, Uh, high potential for abuse and... There's another one. And, okay, lack of accepted safety under medical supervision. And they're trying to say no accepted medical use, which is kind of laughable because um, even in as early as 1944, 1958, um, the ABA and um, American Bar Association, American Medical Association, and um, New York Academy for Medicine found that it shouldn't be in Schedule 1 and that it um, has medical uses um that could definitely benefit a lot of people um and the schaefer commission that when nixon came on actually came out with a report recommending that marijuana should not be in schedule one and president nixon just said nope it's staying in schedule one and that's actually how it stayed and that's where it is today so i'm not familiar i'm familiar with the laguardia laguardia report that back in the 40s that said there's no reason that this is should should be illegal this is there it's not harming the black communities it's not harming the inner city communities there's it should be regulated like alcohol mm-hmm. obviously this is post prohibition um i'm not familiar with the schaefer commission specifically i've heard the name before and i know that president nixon was ultimately responsible for the war on drugs starting it and wasting trillions of dollars at the, by this time yeah so schaefer commission was just the commission that nixon put together to figure out where marijuana should be scheduled. Okay. And it's crazy because his own commission said it shouldn't be schedule one. Mm. And he just was like, you know what? I'm not listening to that. It's like, he just had this commission prepare this whole thing, have all this evidence. And he just kept it in schedule one. He was expecting a different outcome probably. Yeah. And it's crazy because you know how marijuana is spelled sometimes with a J, sometimes with an H. Mm-hmm. The origins of that is that they changed the spelling to make it sound more Mexican. Oh, is okay. what 
that's air quotes. Interesting. So they they were trying. It has racist and xenophobic ties and okay. why it's illegal. And then of course there's the money aspect. Right. Um. So the Controlled Substances Act. Um. The penalties grew harsher and harsher until about the 1970s when the white upper middle class students started being affected okay. by the laws. Then they said, okay, that these are a little too harsh. So we're we're. Into the hippie generation, mm-hmm. we're in post post Woodstock and all that stuff, and so now what was it called? What was it? Nineteen seventy four, somewhere along those those lines, when some other distinctions in the war on drugs was made. I forget specifically, and then so now so now it's the college graduates that are now using and the academics that are and, now using weed. Yes, and they're like, Cannabis. oh, our sons and daughters, white upper middle class, are mm. being affected. That's not okay. So they kind of took a step back, and then in the 80s, we have the whole Reagan just say no, Nancy right. Reagan, and the failure of the D.A.R.E. program. Right, right. I, Drugs are really expensive. That's what D.A.R.E. should stand for. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, what it should, that's what it should be as opposed to what is a drug abuse resistance education. I was always surprised, like, going through D.A.R.E. that I was like— that I always thought I was gonna grow up and people were gonna be like offering me free drugs all the time. And you know, I grew up and I was like, I guess that doesn't happen. No, it shit's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> I go to a dispensary, I'm like, what just happened? Right. No, but but seriously though, like the disparity in between and again, I do think that I'm not one of these people that says uh, I mean, I have a career I had a career in law enforcement and I can see the the side of the house that says these laws are not racist, but that I can also see the side of the house that says, but they're rooted in racism. You know, take a look at the difference in, you know, well, if, if the black population uses it, well, we need to punish the hell out of them. Oh, but now the white middle-class kids are using it. So we need to not punish them. It's the exact same thing that happened in the eighties with crack cocaine Mm -hmm. versus cocaine. That's right. Where I was going next. Okay. And opium when you know, the Chinese immigrants came over. They okay. also, I mean, opium's not really great, but it was definitely targeted for that specific reason. Um, and so was marijuana. And so was crack. The crack laws were, that's that's when a lot of the disparities in sentencing and cocaine and crack, and it, it it's crazy how if you just add a little whatever you right, have to crack, right. I'm not a crack expert. I but. mean, <laughs> that's one's above me. Um so the penalties did soften once it started hitting white America, basically. And then um, it was the three strikes laws that 22 states and the federal government passed between 93 and 95. And then in 1996, California was the first state to legalize medical marijuana. And then from there, I think it's 21 states uh, plus D.C. It's recreationally legal now right. and 39 states. Uh, medical in Arizona was uh, passed their medical in only, just in 2010, mm-hmm. and their uh, recreational was Prop 207 in, in 2020. That one just passed. Mm-hmm. So there is, I'm, I'm, uh, there's a op-ed in one of the newspapers recently that just dropped a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw it or not, but talking about the fallacy of medical marijuana in the state of Arizona. And I'm not very happy with the op-ed. <laughs> so it's the sort of thing where I'm, I'm, I've told my story before and for, I use mine for chronic pain and back pain from, you know, discs and all that. And this particular person who wrote this op-ed talked about, Oh, you know, it's, it's, you can't tell me that the, this, the weed in dispensaries is going to treat this or that. And it's like, well, actually, if you sit down with these people, 
if you sit down and hear their stories and talk to them as human beings, you will understand that cannabis saves lives. Was the author a doctor? No, I don't believe so. Didn't go to medical school? I don't believe so. And they're so. opining on its medical right. therapeutic benefits. Okay. Yep. Well, it, that's why it's called an op-ed, yep. op for opinion, and you know what they say about opinions. Right? So. <laughs> <laughs> you literally think the exact, I said that in our group text to the to my normal people, it was like, yeah, no, opinions are like, you know what opinions are like. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I said. And it's the sort of thing where as we move into the world that we're in now, where we're actually looking back 5,000 years saying it's been used for 5,000 years as medicine. It's been used by from the Chinese culture, I believe is where they found it first. And here we are today in 2023 where I went from busting cannabis users to not touching it to now using it for my back pain and now advocating for it in a very, very condensed period of time. Yet I'm sitting across from you who works for an organization that's trying to get people out of prison for using the same thing that I have sitting in this room that I'm legally, I'm you know well within my rights and within the laws. And I just don't understand where we go from here and how do we get these people out of prison? Again, specifically for just having cannabis. Right. Just, I, I, I don't know, I don't and- get it. So most of the, like we discussed, federal cases are, so Biden's uh, announcement of the, you know, he's going to pardon the simple possession. I mean, nobody's really sitting in prison for just simple possession without any other charges tacked on. But actually, we do have a fair amount of state constituents that are in prison for just marijuana. I mean, um, one of the biggest cases, like my first big case that I ever worked on was uh, Richard DeLisi down in Florida. Okay. He was sentenced to 90 years for, wait for this, conspiracy to possess marijuana with intent to distribute. He didn't possess it. He didn't even, nope, he didn't possess it. They found his thumb okay. on a on a map and we're like, oh, this map was used in connection. And he did 32 years. He got out um, in 2020, and he, I think it was December 2020. Just weed, just cannabis. Yep. That's insane to me. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, 32 years he got out. I, th- I think he was 71 or 72 years old. Great guy, loving to death. That's terrible. It is really terrible. And but he's living his life now, and we're we're so glad that like we were. I'm so glad to even know him. Yeah. He's really his whole attitude. Everything's inspirational, and we have, I mean, we've gotten. So we have 111 constituents that we that are our constituents that have been released okay. that are just for marijuana. It, meaning that the Last Prisoner Project has had a hand and a role in getting those 111 released specifically. Um, so sometimes that means direct legal involvement, and then sometimes that means we helped f- facilitate the release through advocacy efforts okay. or our com- campaigns and stuff. So um, Contacting we have, governors for clemency type stuff. So we, so I have the number here because I knew I was going to forget. We've matched all time 110 constituents with pro bono attorneys. Nice. And about 50 of those um, have resulted in filings, whether it's clemency, compassionate release, um, resentencing, whatnot. Some of them were either they got uh, clemency from Trump or they got parole early. That that often happens, okay. that kind of thing. Um, but going back to what you were saying about <laughs> the, the amount of money that's being spent. So $47 billion 
are spent annually on the war on drugs. And the legal marijuana industry, at least for the U.S. sales, was $10.4 billion. <laughs> We're spending $47 billion and making $10 billion. It's really crazy. And uh, 15.7 Americans have been arrested in the last two decades uh, for marijuana alone. Uh, if someone's arrested for marijuana every 90 seconds, there's more people. Still? Yep. There's more people in prison for marijuana than and arrested for marijuana than all nonviolent crimes combined. And going back to your point, um, a person of color, particularly black people, are more likely to be arrested. And um, I think I read a study that was a people of color are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana despite similar usage rates okay. among their white counterparts. This, is, this isn't always an interesting topic and an interesting um, – I, I don't know how to bridge this gap because I worked for the state of Arizona and I had an assigned area and I could go literally wherever I wanted within that assigned area. Obviously, I can go anywhere else, but – so these are conversations that I don't know how to have with people and I think you're the perfect one. So – would you agree or disagree that its usage is is very much cultural? Would you agree that the black community is much more accepting of using it and has been for a lot longer? No. So okay. we've actually been like the the usage rates are extremely similar okay. among okay. black and white Americans. And actually it was even in the 1800s, sold in the stores, but they just didn't, they called it something else. Well, and they With couldn't sell cocaine the, and right, stuff. Right, right. You know? so, it's a wonder elixir. Just try yeah. this. Um, okay, so that's interesting. So this is the part that I don't know how to, I, I don't, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how I pull over a car and it's a white guy. He has personal possession on him and he gets arrested. I pull over a car. It's a Hispanic person and they have it on him. They get arrested. And I pull over a car. It's a black person. They get have it on him and they get arrested. Is it why are the minorities prosecuted more? Because this is something also, it irks me just a little bit. Like, it's not just the cops that are doing that. There's that's, the rest right. of the criminal that's justice right. system. There's the prosecutors. Mm -hmm. There's the defense side. There's the judges. There's all the Department of Corrections. That's right. It's not just the cops that are, the cops have nothing to do with it. They just gather the evidence and send it on up to a, a lawyer. Right. Well, so, they make the arrest. But. Correct. They But they don't, it, they don't uh, suggest charges. They just gather the facts. This is what happened. Make the arrest and then submit the report and on down the line to the prosecutor that it goes mm -hmm. or a district attorney prosecutor. We call them prosecutors here in Arizona. So that's my question though, is how, why, why is the other communities other than the white communities prosecuted more? Why are they jailed more? What, why? Well, this is going to be my opinion that is based on research. Okay. But um, I think that at least as far as prosecutors go, that the war on drugs and the whole, that whole like idea and that um, the power behind that and this notion, like th the whole war on drugs created this environment where uh, people were, people of color were kind of villainized. Agreed. And when it came to prosecuting, they, people want to want to appear tough on crime for like if they get elected or something Agreed. like that. And now it's kind of trending away from that, thankfully. But I mean, even still here in Arizona, there is very much a still a little bit of a tough on crime attitude, which I'm OK with tough on crime. But right. if it's 
the right kind of crime. Violent crime. crime. Yeah, actual crime. Yeah, actual, yeah. actual crime. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Right. But at the same time, there's also the level that you're talking about. There's so many levels to it. There's prosecutorial mm-hmm. discretion. There's police and police do, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, they do decide what to charge. Like, I'm going to charge you with obstruction of justice or whatever, like when they write the complaint. So the way that I can say it is mine. I always looked at it from just a fact-finding mission, okay? I, I Cars doing 90 and a 65, pull over car for speeding. Walk up to car, smell cannabis. Make arrest for cannabis. Mm-hmm. So it is 100% um, the officer's discretion as to what to charge. So it's, but it's also just just fact finding and evidence gathering to give to the prosecutor because the prosecutor can always decide, no, I don't want to do those charges, whatever the case may be. And this is something that I do. Um, I do think that law enforcement, the, the, the best tool that law enforcement has is discretion. If we start taking away discretion from law enforcement officers, it's going to be black and white. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, you had this, you're charged this, that's it, period, with no discretion. Whereas some things can be just let it slide by. Like I had Deputy Slope who came and talked to me about, you know, this or that, and he talked about suspended licenses. Well, if it's black and white, if you have a suspended license, you're going to jail. Where if an officer has discretion, they can just send you on down the road. You know what I mean? So it's it's these sort of things. So it's just an evidence-gathering thing to send to the prosecutor. So I think it's also not just a race problem. I think it's also a class problem. I agree. Um, I think no matter if you're black, white, Mexican, in Arizona, here in Arizona, Latino. Right. Uh, if you are part of a lower socioeconomic status, you have less resources to hire a good attorney, unfortunately. And public defenders, I'm not even talking down on them. Because public defenders went to law school like the rest yes. of us. And they're officers of the court. And they're really, most of them are doing the best they can. But the caseload is too much. Agreed. The, they don't have the resources. The caseload's too much. They don't have the time that if you have money to hire a legal defense or post-conviction relief to um, specialize and, you know, get get evidence, get experts, yeah. that's money. And so essentially people are paying for at least not paying for the outcome, but paying to increase their chance of a certain outcome that – People of lower socioeconomic status, regardless of race, but it does it obviously particularly affects black people and people of color more. Um, can't they? They don't have, they don't have the ability, and also they don't have to hire that legal counsel. And sometimes they, you know, they grew up like you were saying, and they have priors mm-hmm. from um, when when they were growing up, even if it's juvenile or as an adult like small time things um not having money and like a lot of people you know you're like how did you get into selling drugs and they're like i just wanted to support my my kid i'm a single father whatever whatever it may be and those are problems that obviously if you're of a higher socioeconomic status that you're you're not going to run into as many of those problems you're more likely to get hired you're like a it, there's so many. There's it's yeah. it's such a big topic. Um, the the communities, um, the the way that you know it's. I don't know the, what was the, what's the word gerrymandering. The redlining. Uh, yeah. Okay. Like the way that um, people of color got like forced yeah. into urban areas. Yeah. Like all of these things factor into 
their what kind of education they get, what kind of opportunities they have, and it affects the decisions they make. And when they don't have a lot of these socio low, lower socioeconomic status families don't have the same kind of family support that you would see um, because a lot of people of color uh, black fathers are in prison. Right. And also it's partially um, the way the the kind of. Sorry, I'm trying to think of the word, but it's the support that you get. And when you're trying to argue before a judge, you can have letters of support or people saying, oh, I'm going to help this person. Right, right. And um, those kind of make it less likely for you to reoffend. But you're more likely to reoffend if you have a lower socioeconomic status and you're put back in that position again, especially you, when you get out of prison. Yeah, if you're going right back to where you did those those things. In- and then the judge is going to look at the guidelines, but they can make their own decision and they're going to factor in these past charges, yeah. which they shouldn't have even gotten convictions for cannabis because the United States government is now making money off of the sales. Oh, we can't talk about that. Yeah. Like, come on now. And we can't talk about the tax base and how much money they're getting. Come on now. It's, it's really crazy. So basically it's like, there's so many levels. There's the judge the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And then actually when they're in prison and, and they finally get out, it's the, the recidivism rates are higher um, based on, their socioeconomic status and what they're returning to. And that's why our reentry program is so important because we give them resources for trans even people don't even think about like transportation to get to work, things like that, medical needs, dependence. And the terrible thing is that not only are these people being affected, but the whole family structure and community is being affected. Assuming that they have a family. Yeah. I, it was a few years ago and I forget it was on one of the local uh, Facebook pages a gentleman put up, I run a halfway house. Um, it, this was right during the COVID lockdowns and all that good stuff. They says, he goes, I run a halfway house. My guys are we're hungry. My guys can't get work because they can't go to the DMV and get a freaking driver's license. So I took my, I loaded up some food and took my, and took my kids to show them and went and, and talked to these guys for just a, a moment, brought them some food. I'm like, if the only thing keeping you from reoffending is some food, I'll run out and get you some freaking food. But he was telling me like one of the obstacles was just going and getting a driver's license, just going and getting a state ID. I'm like, why isn't that on the path? To, why isn't there a DMV office sitting at the exit of a freaking prison system and giving you your state issued ID? Like, I don't understand why we're not doing very basic things to allow people to reenter and to come back into society. Because they, the prison industrial complex has no interest. Zero. In having people not, rece- they want people to come back because so, that's more money they no. can make and that's jobs. And then we also have the big pharma aspect of it. Not a fan of big pharma. The two biggest people, like opponents, lobbyists against marijuana legalization, are departments of correction workers, private prisons, and um, big pharma. And that kind of goes to show, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the fact that they're lobbying for their own jobs. Yep. And it's just really crazy to think that, like you said, that so many people don't have the re-entry resources. And I mean, we have so many constituents. I mean, the vast majority of our constituents are males. We have a handful of females, but um, a lot of them are fathers. And a lot of them are like 
I just want to go home and, yeah. and be able to raise my kid and watch them play football, be able to support them. And, and it's, that's the most heartbreaking thing that I see is that these fathers are away from their families, significant others and their kids and their kids are, you know, growing up seeing their father behind glass. No. And it's, it's just really heartbreaking. And we have constituents, like I mentioned, Richard Delisi. I mean, when he got out, his son was in his forties who I met and, um, his daughter had been in a serious car accident and was, she's permanently injured. And then he had another son who unfortunately passed away and he just was in prison this entire time. And you it, said 32 years. It was, it was either 31 or 32. That's an insane amount of time for cannabis and especially to not see your kids for a low level offense, a nonviolent offense. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's so outrageous. And it's like, so there's so many purposes behind incarceration and it's incapacitation. Uh, but one of them is rehabilitation. Right. I agree with you. Okay. It should be. That, yeah. sh that should be priority. Right. And it's kind of like we're not really doing, I don't like, we're not really doing much to help them rehabilitate themselves. I mean, it's really crazy. Like it, people go in and, and they don't come out the same. No. And just picturing that you're in there and you're languishing in prison, sitting there in years while people doing the exact yeah. same thing are selling cannabis and creating intergenerational wealth is just such a travesty of justice. It it's really a kick is. in the pants right there. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And I don't like, so for those people that are still serving those sentences, but because it's federal, they can't get out. They can't. Is there any sort of, are you guys seeing any sort of reform on the federal? I, I have said that it's funny that you said big pharma. Um, I follow a couple of different cannabis advocates. One of them is um, the Pot Brothers at Law out of California. I love those dudes. Um, they were talking about all these different laws that are being created in, in California. And I've stated and I've posted them much time until Big Pharma is out of the picture. Cannabis is never going to be legalized in the country. That's my personal opinion. I hope I'm wrong. I want to be yeah. wrong. I, I want to be proven wrong on that. But when you can take a pill that fixes the issue but then causes all these side, other side effects that you have to take more pills for – why would Big Pharma want to stop that money flow when you can, you know, use cannabis and turn around your life and not be a slave to freaking pills? It, it's so crazy, especially when you look at the death rates yep. among drugs for prescription drugs versus marijuana, which is zero. Zero. It's, Say that again for the people in the back. Zero. It's zero. <laughs> yeah. So it's really frustrating. And I, I also, you know, I... I'm hoping that you're going to be wrong. I think that we're I, gonna, I think we're going to get them out. But I mean, so they can get released federally under the First Step Act, which is compassionate release. Okay. And you can qualify for compassionate release for a variety of reasons. Um, during COVID, there's no cases of them just saying, oh, you're a risk. COVID's, COVID's a risk to you for being in prison because then they just let everyone out. Basically. Right, right. So it has to be like a health condition also okay. so um we've seen people get out who they are male have some kind of heart issue they have asthma i mean takashi 69 the rapper okay. uh 
I think Daniel Hernandez is his real name. He was supposed to do a long time and he was in, I think, Southern Northern District in New York. And he actually ended up getting released under the first step back okay. because he had asthma. Okay. And he was, he's in his twenties. He's a young kid. Yeah. And then we have constituents who've had compassionate release get denied, even though, so one of our constituents, <laughs> he was incarcerated here in Arizona, but he was federal. Okay. Um, his name was, I hope I'm saying this right. Horacio Estrada Elias. Okay. I, don't, I think that's how you say it. <laughs> but he got out uh, after he got compassionate release denied, even though he had major health problems. So he didn't get out until he was in his 90s, which he, we got compassionate release granted to him, uh, I think, in 2021. Is there any sort of education that's being given on the federal side of the house regarding cannabis and what its effects are, or are we still just stuck in the 1930s as far as you're aware? Is there like education to who anywhere? <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause I can tell you right now, like law enforcement on the state side from the people that I've spoken to, they're still not getting They're They're getting updates on how to deal with the laws. Um, several, uh, when you go to the more advanced programs, they're learning about, some of the thing, the endocannabinoid system and all that type of stuff, but your regular officers not getting any kind of education in the fact of the benefits and or anything like that. It's just still the status quo, and the younger generation is obviously more accepting of cannabis. But I just, I just can't see like these lawmakers and and everybody getting any sort of education and still being this this firm on their stances. So to their credit. Um, I will say the U.S. Sentencing Commission does conduct studies, okay. and there have been studies on uh, recidivism rates uh, based on low-level drug crimes that include marijuana, and there have been medical reports considered and rescheduling or descheduling okay. marijuana as a Schedule One under the Controlled Substances Act. So there is talks. There's talks, but and there there's also um, a directive uh, to stop. Uh, arresting and prosecuting for uh, marijuana crimes. The pro the problem is the other offenses that they tie it into. Understood. Understood. And as long as they can still tie in those things, and as long as it remains federally illegal, um, people that are doing something, you know, we have constituents who uh, Rudy Gamo, who is our is a Michigan constituent, he was operating a uh, dispensary in Michigan where it's legal, mm -hmm. and he got, I think, eight years um, because basically he didn't meet some of the like qualifications that you have to have, like the procedural things that okay. they require. Okay. Because the law back when he was doing it, the laws weren't clear. And basically the things he was doing now would have been legal. And it's really crazy. He's thankfully he got just got his um, parole approved to be released in July. But it's crazy to think that you know, or we have, there's people, we had, a there was one guy who he was a vet and he had PTSD and he smoked marijuana for his PTSD. And okay. I think he also had some injuries and he had his medical marijuana with him crossed state lines. Okay. I think he was in Kansas. I, I, I could be wrong. I'm familiar with this case. I, I believe I am. It's an older yeah. black gentleman that. Sean Worsley. Okay. Yeah. So. Really, really crazy. Um, I know I keep saying that, but it really is crazy. No, it <laughs> it is. actually is. But yeah, it's 
out of control. And then, oh, I was going to say the other avenue for federal release is clemency, okay. which that's basically doesn't exist as an avenue. I mean, it does, but it can clemency can just sit so that you can file a clemency application and there is petition and there's no time limit okay. that they have to decide on it. They can just put it on the desk of the next politician who comes in or they can just deny it. And it's like, that's it. That's it. That's the decision. And there's nowhere else to go after that. After that, um, you could reapply for compassionate release or you could try to overturn your sentence on other grounds or try to get resentencing. But that's why the law side of it and the policy making is so important yeah. to provide not just avenues to, for relief to fix the mistake that we already made by putting them in there in the first place, right, right. but on the intervention side okay. with police. Yep. And that's why it's so great to talk to you and see that you're trying to bridge the gap between, you know, law enforcement and I'm not going to say the law, law enforcement and everybody else, but. But it's law enforcement and everybody else. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And the people who still think that people should be in prison for marijuana, it's like, if somebody has an articulable argument that they would like to share with me, I'd love to hear it because I haven't heard one yet. <laughs> well, and the thing is, though, is it's like, okay, I I do believe – this is all personal things that I'm saying here. Um, there, are, there are people who say, oh, you can't be um, uh, under the influence of cannabis. What's the word I'm looking for? Intoxicated. Mm -hmm. Can't be intoxicated under uh, cannabis and all this good stuff. And I will argue like oh, 100% you can. I, I've been a cannabis user for four, four <laughs> years now. And there are times, and I had the conversation with uh, Deputy Slope about there are times where I can smoke half a joint and I'm not. But then there's other times where I absolutely am. And there's a time and a place where we need to treat it as – if I was prescribed Xanax mm -hmm. and I took one Xanax and that's the prescription, you're not intoxicated. You take two or three because you mm -hmm. like the, the effect, you're now intoxicated. It's the exact same effect. Now, obviously, the first time you take something, you're going to be a little discombobulated right. a little bit. But – we need to come to a point. The science needs to catch up. It's not a, it, like that op-ed said. It's not a matter of it isn't medical marijuana. Is it? It needs to be studied as medicine. It needs to be looked at and regarded as medicine where we can take a look at those sorts of things and then come up with good studies to show the public that it is, in fact. Well, there are tons of great medical literature and studies on marijuana and actually on hallucinogens. Okay, on that's up and coming, mushrooms. too. Mushrooms. Yes. But the problem is we're not listening to it. Agreed. <laughs> there, and right now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but this is just strictly from an outside view, just kind of looking at, you know, social media. There seems right now there seems to be a jump from finding people the health care that they need to now we're going to go straight to psychedelics. There seems to right now there appears to be this gap in the 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 thought of cannabis as being used for mental health, as for being used for several things, they've everybody's just kind of made the switch over to psychedelics. And I've seen um, uh, Congressman uh, Crenshaw and even AOC. I know that they were working together, but there's like a missing part of it. That's like, wait a minute, time out. There's still relevant uses for cannabis in mental health, right. for PTSD, for all sorts You're like, of other. Let's go back, rewind. Right, right time let's out. go back to the cannabis. Right. If that don't work, then maybe let's try the mushrooms. It's exactly it. Yeah, <laughs> it just it just seems as though that everybody's kind of forgotten about that for the mental health aspects of it. And I'm here to say, like I, I 
I again, all of my stories are personal and anecdotal. Um, I did not realize that I had ADHD until I was diagnosed at 35 years old. And then when I started using cannabis after that, and I'm like, well, holy shit, I can actually think and process stuff when I'm, you know, not going a million miles an hour in my brain. Right. But that's the sort of thing is that we need to get to a place where it's looked at by doctors. But who is funding the doctors? Pharmaceutical companies. Who's sending them on their, you know, seven-week your seven-day vacations for in all golf tournaments and all that, the pharmaceutical companies. So they're not even going to be allowed to edge in there and get their word in. They're also scared of the DEA. So they're going to lose their medical license if they prescribe any, prescribe anything as opposed to just recommend. Right. And w- there are, like, universities do a good job at doing the studies behind the marijuana. And I'm not sure kind of how the research aspect of it works with actual doctors okay. that are – funded by the pharmaceutical companies, but there's definitely a conflict of interest in multiple parts here, multiple parts from the prosecutor wanting to get reelected or, you know, when, or elected judges wanting to be tough on crime. And, um, you know, who is in law enforcement, like the sheriff or somebody gets elected. The sheriffs of sheriff departments do do get elected. Okay. Do you find those people tend to be more like, they try to get elected on a tough on crime platform in Arizona. So yes and no, but at the same time, though, I'm going to use the, my sheriff. I'm going to mention again, Mark Lamb. We're going to sit down one of these days. I promise you. Um, like Sheriff Lamb is of foreign by the people, which I believe that in government when I'm, when I'm doing the Arizona normal thing and I'm trying to get people interested in like, going, look, you can sit in your house and smoke now and have your card in this or that. But if you don't get involved and start telling these representatives what it is that you want, they're going to do their own thing. So I know from a personal aspect of Sheriff Mark Lamb, he's informed by the people. The people have said that this is a legal substance. So therefore, they're going to treat it legally. And none of it, he's got a huge social media presence. He's never once that I'm aware of ever been anti-cannabis or anything like that. He's anti-DUI. I'm anti-DUI. I don't want anybody driving under the influence of any substance. And they're actually developing a, a breathalyzer for cannabis. I, that scares me. It's in the works. Yeah, that scares me. I, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the research that I've been reading regarding that. I need to get up to date on that. But I did see because I, I was wondering how that would work. I, that I don't know. I don't really understand. And again, we don't have a per se law here, luckily, regarding THC limits. So you do have a, a per se law regarding uh, alcohol. But there's been so much research on alcohol oh yeah like people the the science community and the law enforcement community agree that if you're at a 0.08 or above in alcohol limit you're drunk Mm -hmm. you know we they agree on that the science agrees lawyers agree everybody agrees but on the cannabis side of the house nobody freaking knows yeah what's 100 nanograms what's two what's five what's 10 nobody knows nobody has any clue what what kind of you know uh intoxication that person is and it's Interesting you bring up alcohol because the when you compare the amount of deaths that have occurred, I mean, I don't even, I don't drink at all. And, you know, the, the negative effects that it has on people's lives. I mean, I'm not like president of the temperance society right, or right, anything right. like that. But I'm just saying, if you look at something that's legal and I'm not aware of any therapeutic use of of uh, alcohol unless you're drowning your sorrows is <laughs> and then it's even make it it's compounding yeah. them and making them worse right um and then looking at the risk for dependence physical psychological looking at the potential for abuse 
huge potential for abuse, looking at the number of deaths, the harm that it's caused, and seeing that anyone could just, not anyone, anyone over the age of 21 can go and just buy it. As much as you want. And the can but cannabis, they're like, no, uh, our kid, you know, we don't want it to be legal. What if the kids get a hold of it? What if the kids get a hold of the alcohol? Would we right? just forget about that? <laughs> I grew up in a day and age up in Northeast Mesa when it was still all, our, all freaking orange groves out there where we would go out and party and drink and get pass out drunk and on a regular basis and we're damaging ourselves and, the and you know, but again, anybody over the age of 21 can do that. But, and, and again, the cirrhosis of the liver and the downward spiral in your, in your job and lack of performance and all that type of stuff. Cannabis doesn't do those things. Yeah. I, I think the argument, this is a personal statement, you know, people say, oh, you know, weed makes you lazy, this or that. I do think that the, the, those types of personalities, the lazy type personality, whatever the case may be, um, they're going to use any substance. It doesn't matter if it's alcohol. It doesn't matter if it's weed. It doesn't matter. Those are just the non-ambitious, non-driven type people that are going to find an escape in, no matter what it is. Right. Making <laughs> something illegal doesn't make it not used and abused. Right. And it creating this black market for cannabis in states where it's illegal, it's like the fact that the drug cartels are liking that yep. is outrageous. Yep. And the big pharma companies that, I mean, just look at the op opioid epidemic. <laughs> Created by the freaking pharmaceutical companies. Right. Just because you make something illegal doesn't mean it's not going to exist. There will always be crime. There will always be drugs. There will always be people illegally using drugs. Amen. Should we create, the choice is actually between a black market and a regulated legalized market. Amen. Which one's safer? I mean, it's it's common sense. If it's 1930 and you're in the reefer madness era, it's oh, not the goodness. cannabis. You might be going to jazz parties and having sex with black men. Woo. <laughs> Out of I, control. I, I, and I just don't comprehend how they're just continuing to perpetuate the war on drugs by allowing some states to legalize it other states don't and it's just create you're creating criminals and the drug cartels are more powerful than ever just like you said there's going to be a black market there's there's still to this day a black market for cigarettes yeah for alcohol there's a black market for human beings there, oh yeah that's huge i'm, I'm very anti-human smuggling that's one of the things i did mm -hmm. in law enforcement there's there's a black market for but i mean legal substances there's there's a black market for all this stuff in this country now it's crazy that most people are in jail or prison for, you know, possessing a substance that alters your consciousness. But there's more people in prison for that than for the the rapists and yep. the drug smugglers. And I know this is cliche, but you could get a manslaughter charge and get out in six years. Six, seven years. Yeah. First time offense. Yeah. I mean, I know people that have, you know, gotten in car accident or, you know, they they've killed someone or I know people have been killed in alcohol related mm -hmm. OVI accidents and they're not serving 30 years no. like Richard Lisi 32 years so it's just not the way that we're doing things is not working no it's working for the prisons yep. it's working for you know and the argument is like okay first of all the state and federal 
taxes that could be produced uh, if we were to legalize it and more people being out of prison, generating more revenue. And the last thing is 1.1 million jobs could be created just by 2025 if it became federally legal right now. Yeah, you'd have the growers, the the. I mean, and it, and it breaks down into other things too. Growers know how to grow plants, which in turn, you can grow food. You know, your your sale, your dispensaries, they know sales and business and entrepreneurship, which will lead to other things and creating a bigger economy, a larger economy. And I just wanted to say one of the things though too is that I do believe that having these men locked up in prison. And not being and able, women and when, but but not being able to be a father to their kids, I think, has a huge impact in what's happening in society. And then obviously the the mothers as well, a hundred percent, and not having your parental role model in your house for a simple possession charge or you know sales or anything like that that yeah. is leading to a degradation in in society. We have a constituent in Florida, Juanita Maria Kinsey, who gave birth. While incarcerated, she was shackled by her hands and feet. I mean, when I heard that, I really did cry. While giving giving birth. Mm -hmm. And then they take the baby. And it really, I'm getting goosebumps. I might cry. Like, it makes me so, that's that's just terrible to me. So terrible. How, the, the other thing that I always take a look at is that, suppose you're one of those prison guards. You're one of those nurses. You're one of those whatever. Like, there's a human component to all of these people. No matter, uh, look, I'm not going to talk about pedophiles. There's no human component to that in any way, shape, or form. Like that's we're not; we're, those are not humans. But I'm talking, you know, you're you're people who just made bad decisions. And those sh- people should be incapacitated. That's <laughs> agreed. This, that's part of the reason of prison. But I'll let you continue. But no, no, should no. a marijuana? Per- they need to be incapacitated because they smoked a little little reefer (laughs) no not in any way shape Uh, go ahead sorry no 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 don't that's fine but it's just it's one of these things where it's like i i just don't understand it even low level crimes like my my thought process on crime has definitely changed especially especially drugs especially the what i've seen on being on the outside i say outside but like no longer being in law enforcement because you get fed so much propaganda as a police officer. You get fed so much government this and government that, and it's all anti, anti, mm-hmm. anti, anti. So even alcohol, anti-alcohol, but every cop drinks. Every cop drinks, you know, till they're numb in, in every single weekend. But I just, yeah, no, I don't comprehend locking people up and not treating them just as humans, just as basic human beings. I would never, I don't know what I would do in a situation like that where somebody came in as a, as an, a low-level offender and is shackled. Like, I'm hoping that I would have enough fortitude to be like, can we take these damn things off and yeah, let the person have a human and experience? The state prisons are way worse no. than the federal prisons. I mean, prison's not, it's prison. So right. it's not. But if you look at other countries, it's really crazy. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to opine on whether it should be that nice. Like, I look at like Sweden or something. <laughs> I'm like, I want to go there. <laughs> but, right. If I I'm going to commit a crime, it's going to be there. Right. Yeah. But some of the, it's really crazy that. <sighs> A lot of these state facilities, um, first of all, their primary response to COVID has been solitary confinement, which has been studied and proven to psychologically damage and affect people. We're bringing people into prison, damaging them, and making them arguably more dangerous by putting them in prison. Not all people. Like some people are, 
you know, I don't think if someone goes to prison for cannabis, uh, they're going to come out more dangerous. But some people are going to, you know, it just depends on the person. They're going to go in and it's a, it's like a crime network or yeah. they're, they're going to go to prison. You're not going to make it out alive. There's a lot of violence in prison. There's a lot of sexual assault in yeah. prison. Um, they don't get the health and medical benefits that they need. They don't have the resources in the prisons to provide basic necessities. They can't have hand sanitizer because they're going to, oh, they might drink it and get drunk. <laughs> they are like, oh, you're sick. Okay, we're going to just put you in the hole right. for a week and two weeks, whatever, and not tell, you're not going to have any contact with your family, not tell your family where you are. Like, that's a human rights violation to me. Um, some of these, if you look at some of these prisons and how just dirty, disgusting they look, um, and we have so many constituents who get out and have so many health problems, dental problems. I'm sure. And, uh, I mean, Richard Delisi came out and he has gotten significantly healthier. It's crazy. He's just been like this. Um, the food they're feeding them, terrible nutritional value. Um, the, the, I have really thought about that before. Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. Like, they... Uh, when they finally do go to the doctor, the doctors are like, I mean, the the what prison does to your body, especially for long term sentences, is, is really despicable. It's really despicable. And um, if you look at even these corrections officers are smuggling drugs yeah. into the prison, yeah. it's kind of like. What are we doing here? What are, <laughs> what's going on? And there's some people you do have to incapacitate. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because, you know, they there are some people who are incapable of rehabilitation. I agree. But I, I mean, I'd say that the large, vast majority, if we actually took measures to try to rehabilitate people, could be re rehabilitated. I don't think someone who gets arrested for marijuana was like, irredeemable and they, i don't think know. i think 99 percent of those people of most people in prison are redeemable yeah we can teach them job skills we can teach them healthy coping skills i mean i'm in my 40s and i still have unhealthy coping skills that i deal with and like you know what i mean like we're all a screwed up mess in some way mm -hmm. shape or form on the outside though we have a little bit of an idea on how to get that help but when you're stuck in prison what are you gonna do in the mental illness component oh We've it's criminalized huge. mental illness We've criminalized it and we've criminalized if you think about what you're actually criminalizing when it comes to cannabis it's just that you're experimenting with your own consciousness mm -hmm. that's illegal for some reason uh, again and not and not just that but the argument is what you could do right well you could do this you're getting punished for something you haven't even done yet you could have hit someone with a car. Well, I didn't. Right. You know, you could have this, that. You could have killed someone. Well, I didn't. You could have done this, could have done that. It's like you're punishing someone for something that hasn't even happened yet. And then alternatively, you're punishing them for experimenting with their own consciousness, which the government really shouldn't have a role in. <laughs> I, I, and that is exactly how my thought process now no longer in law enforcement has changed. I have been, I have only used cannabis. I've never used anything else. But I can tell you right now that I have been exposed to people who are very educated, high level thinkers and problem solvers that use a myriad 
of drugs, of mind-altering substances, and are some of the smartest people I know. Mm -hmm. Not going to name any names, not going to name any substances or anything like that, but at the same time, and then there's also people who I know who have had horrific bouts of PTSD. I know several military veterans who have been, I, I was never deployed. I never went overseas. I was military. I never did anything like that. Don't have any of those You were three years, I think you said, or four? four? I, I did four. Yeah, I did my four years, got out, became a police officer here. So I never deployed, never went overseas, but I have buddies who have, and the only, they said that they were like, you know, standing on the ledge of, metaphorically speaking here, of suicide. And the only thing that has saved their life is the fact that they found psilocybin mushrooms. And now they have a reason to live. Now they have, and this is more than one person. This is multiple mm -hmm. people that I know that are using this therapeutically that have changed their lives and who they are and are a fantastic human being now. And I, and exactly what you just said, what you just said though is not, it's not looked at in that way. It's not looked at as altering your own consciousness. It's seen as a societal thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's not seen as, well, this is my mind and my brain and I can do with it what I want. Mm -hmm. No, no. I also will say this, that I think there's a lot, I think there's a correlation between using these substances and a distrust for the government. Oh, yeah, because when you look <laughs> at it and someone is telling you, you can't do this, it's kind of like if you grew up with overprotective parents mm -hmm. and they're like, you can't do that or you're going to die or mean girls. You right. know, if you have sex before you're married, you'll get AIDS and die. <laughs> and it's kind of like when someone's telling you over and over that something's dangerous and harmful and you see that it's not, how can you trust anything? Right. You're going to have Your a distrust. Risk perception is thrown off. It's like when the person goes to college and they're, they're like, their parents had told them that everything was dangerous. Right. And they don't, they make terrible decisions. Not everyone, but just an example, uh, they make terrible decisions because they don't know what's actually risky, what's not risky. When right. someone, you don't, the, the trust for that authority to be there. And when you don't judge things to be fair or consistent in the way that your government's operating, clear, consistent, transparent, and fair, then you're going to look at it as illegitimate. Amen. And you're not going to want to follow it. And it just continues to perpetuate these societal problems. The the harder government pushes that says, trust us, trust us, trust us, the more I'm standing there saying, no. Meanwhile, they're, <laughs> no. they're drugging private citizens with LSD. Right, right. Uh, not recently. That, that was in the thing. 70s, I think. That's a thing. But was that the 70s? Uh, Operation MK Ultra. Yep. Yep. Like the, it was Wormwood. I yeah. love that documentary. It, it's so. just, but, but, but yeah, those sorts crazy. of things are happening in this day and age. These sorts of things, the more the government says, trust us, trust us, trust us, it's like the more people are like going, no, look at all the – take, for instance, I'm going to go back to this op-ed again where the person's talking about – that really pissed me off in case you didn't notice. <laughs> this person's talking about, oh, you know, the FDA does this or that. Well, actually, the FDA doesn't test a freaking drug. They're, they have a very, very tiny little component. They take the data from the drug manufacturer and scan the data and then make the ruling based upon that. How many drugs have been recalled because the FDA, the government said, trust us, trust mm -hmm. us. We're good. It's good. How many drugs have been recalled? Thousands, thousands upon thousands. I did the research on this have been recalled because the government said, trust us. But then next thing you know, people are dying or having horrific neurological effects or whatever the case is. Right. And that being said, I do think that obviously there's so there's a lot of room for improvement in all different <laughs> facets of government. But. 
I do think that more in more recent times where it's trending away from criminalization and the tough on crime thing. And we kind of realized as a society how harmful um, these ideas were to people of color, so low socioeconomic status, to family structures. Um, As it's trending away from that, um, you have seen more, you know, of society coming together in in states and legalizing things. Or in Arizona, it was actually a voter initiative referendum that got marijuana legalized um so you know little steps are being made here and there but there's more to be done obviously oh, there's so much i more mean to be biden done. saying president biden saying what was that november said you know no person should be in prison for simple possession and but there needs to be more right because nobody's sitting in federal prison for just simple possession right and right it's kind of like there there just there needs to be those steps taken on we, we need to offer more reentry support while they're in prison. We need to offer more rehabilitative services. We need to put, instead of putting money into hunting down people who use weed and throwing them in prison and running the prisons, why don't we put it into making them, you know, rehabilitating them? And why don't we put that into creating, you know, that energy into actually going after real crime? I agree. How, how do you make this happen? Like I, my, my personal opinion is like a prison should be for a, a paramilitary style boot camp where you wake up, you do PT and then you go to job training. And then in the evening, that's, that would be, that's just my personal take on it without having doing a lot of thinking about it. But there, it should be a program to where you're taught discipline, you're taught skills, you're taught a job. I mean, look at all the thousands of trades that could be done by teaching these people how to build, fix, grow, whatever the case is. How do we emphasize the fact that that is how we keep people out of prison? That is how we educate them. That is how we grow the economy and and get fathers and mothers back in the homes with the kids. But the politicians are too busy spending money over here for their little pet projects. And I I won't go that (laughs) conspiracy theory way, but, but how do we convince them that this is the way? This is what we do. This is good for the economy. This is good for the family, the communities. So there's two facets to that. Um, First, only put people in prison that really need to be there. That's number one. So that, you know, the money, time, resources can go to people that actually need it. Somebody smoking some weed probably doesn't need to be in prison getting rehabilitative services. Right. And then as far as actually providing these rehabilitative services and getting, you know, um, people to realize that that that's the best thing, I guess it's just looking at, recidivism research um just educating yourself um that's a lot of what last prisoner project does is is public education and awareness campaigns um not just listening to one news source right i don't listen to any of them anymore i read all different kinds of stuff i listen all the different kinds of stuff and there's some people who are like i only listen to this yeah no and you have to avail yourself of everything and then Another thing is politicians need to actually follow through on their promises. And Amen. we need to stop electing people who aren't going to follow through on their promises. Say that again, louder for the people in the back, because it <laughs> that's they just keep electing the same people for years and years and years. And people who have the power to do things need to do them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's crazy. President Biden said that, you know, he he parted 
a simple marijuana possession. That's only federal. Right. And that's it's crazy because he even in his statement encouraged state governors to do the same. And only like a handful of them really did anything. And that's that's where our pardons to progress campaign that we're working on comes in right now. And it's um, writing letters and encouraging something that people can do to make people realize it and to change things going to your question um, to state governors and trying to put the pressure on them to follow through on what they say have said that they're going to do and to, you know, take the president's recommendation and, you know, pardon or agree. People who have, you know, these governors who can grant clemency, it's kind of like, just do it. Right. For If it's just a merit, just do it. <laughs> Stop right? talking about it. Yeah. Just freaking do it. Yeah, I agree. It's crazy. Like, I agree. And, you know, not to get political, but, you know, we had a recent president who was a celebrity, uh, former celebrity, <laughs> who uh, pardoned quite a few or granted clemency to quite a few of our constituents, marijuana offenders, right at the end of his presidency. I think we need to stop making that a, oh, I'm on my way out. I'll just do Agreed. it before I leave. Let's make this more of a thing. And then on the front end, let's stop putting people in there that we got to let out early. Agreed. So I think you're talking about President Trump. You can say his name. his name. You can say his name. <laughs> I'm 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 in the middle. I don't I care I don't care about any of that stuff. Yeah, I care about we're, we're nonpart. Uh, we're yeah nonpartisan and and these sorts of things that better the you know there is a I, I hate the terms left and right and all that good stuff. I, I I like the saying there's a left wing and a right wing, but they're all connected to the same bird. Mm -hmm. You know I I, I thought you're gonna say heart. Oh no! I was like, <laughs> that's fun. That's a good one. Yeah, but it's the sort of thing where we're all connected together and. These are just good practices and policies that are going to get, you know, if you're looking at it from a Democrat point of view, that's that takes a softer approach on crime and rehabilitates people. If you take a look at it from Republican side of the House, you're reconnecting nuclear families and creating tax revenue. So there's a there's a commonality in all of it, which is to but if you actually stop and take a look at the person, mm -hmm. you know, I think the person gets overlooked in a lot of all this stuff. And also our veterans that you were talking yep. about earlier. I mean, if they are finding medicine, that's we need to treat our veterans better. I mean, the majority of the homeless population, there's large homeless population here in Arizona is veterans. Yep. And mentally ill people. We need to stop criminalizing mental illness. And we need to listen. And some of us need to speak up. Yep. Like you were saying that you know a lot of, uh, I don't know, what you, upstanding people who smoke weed and do a lot of drugs. And people need to stop. You know, it kind of... What did Clinton, uh, President Clinton said, you know, I smoked it once, but I didn't inhale. Oh, bullshit. Yeah. Come on. People need to, I'm not saying like every person who's, who smokes weed needs to like stand up and be like, I'll smoke weed. But like right. people need to stop acting like it needs to become more normalized. It needs to stop being spoken in hushed tones mm -hmm. when you're at parties. Because guess what? I'm completely guilty of it in my own in little area here. A new neighbor moved in and I was like. Hey, you smoke? And I was like, wait a minute. We don't have to be like that. We can talk about it. And it's crazy because you would say for even a business dinner, you'd say, do you want to meet for a drink or right. a cocktail? But you're not going to be like, I mean, I guess you kind of could in the weed industry or, or whatever. But but most of the execs don't smoke. Yeah. 
Or they don't say they smoke. Right. Agreed. Because they want to be upstanding. And it's kind of like lots of people. It's a medicine. It is. I mean, lots of us upstanding people can take a medicine and it shouldn't be criminalized. So that's our entire mission at Last Prisoner Project is just redressing these past and continuing harms that stem from these racist, xenophobic, classist policies and laws that are perpetuated and uh you know, lobbied for for people's own financial interests yeah. and not actually the greater interests of society. And we talk about a lot of this stuff in Last Prisoner Project I actually just launched a podcast. Oh nice. And it's called Just Cannabis uh Critical Critical Candid Conversations. Okay. With the Triple C. And our director of impact, Michalina Belina, um, talks a lot on that. Season one covers like women who are incarcerated, like we were talking about earlier. And it kind of just, it's better advocating for more human centric, yeah. uh, anti racist uh, cannabis policy and criminal justice reform and opening up that conversation. So it's kind of in line with what a lot of what you do is just opening that door yeah. for that conversation. And I love what you're doing, by the way. Thank you. It's so, what you're doing is very unique in that. It's rare to have someone who used to be law enforcement who's coming, like how I was saying, some people need to speak up. That's awesome that you're openly saying, you know, I use it medicinally and I used to be in law enforcement and I used to arrest people for it. I just, I posted a picture on my social media today of a dope load that I had. And it's like, and I've been asked the question of like, well, do you feel guilty? No, I don't feel guilty because- there's still a job to be done, but you can also do those things with compassion. And you're doing so much now to open the conversation and it can, and to connect people because I mean, I have law enforcement, not in my immediate family, but in my extended family. So I think that I have a little more of a compassionate view. Whereas some people, if all you see is the news and you don't actually, like you were saying, human centric, it's it's like people villainize the police, people villainize the pot users, the police, Amen. and people on the right. And we need to stop villainizing each other and look at each other like as human beings. What one of the things I'm not going to go into any part of it, but like one of the there was a national tragedy that just happened a few days ago at a school shooting. Um, that the response by law enforcement, I said I'm not going to get into any part of yeah. that, but the response by law enforcement has been praised by both the left and the right in this particular thing because it's something that we can come together with and say, look, good cops doing good work. Right. You know, you can look at the person and, and stop villainizing. And if you do just watch the news, all you're going to see is the bad. They're not going to show you the... Nobody's like, a great day in Arizona today. I'm back right, to you. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, they're not going to show the human sides of it. And one of the things that... And I appreciate your... Thank you for the compliment because one of the things I'm trying to show is the fact that I'm going to make an assumption that you probably use cannabis. I haven't asked you directly yet. So I'm going to make that assumption. And I'm going to assume that most of the people that work at Last Prisoner Project probably use cannabis. You can be intelligent. You can be smart. You can be ambitious, you can be driven, you can do all of these things and still use it, even if you use it recreationally. Well, I'm going to surprise you and say that I'm not a cannabis user. Okay. However, I think even if you don't, even if you don't use cannabis, you can still believe that it should be legal. Amen. And users and non-users, it's not like, oh, just people who use it want it to be legal so they can freely get high and smoke dope. Right, It's also... There's people like me who I just prefer to be off the substances. 
just the way my brain is. I like to, I got enough. I'm already crazy enough as it is. So, um, I mean, I'm not going to say I've never smoked cannabis before, but you didn't uh, inhale in my youth. No, yeah. And I didn't inhale either, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that it benefits so many people. And just because I don't use it doesn't mean that people deserve to be in prison. Right. So it takes all different kind of perspectives, all different kind of people to, um, make this work come together and have these kind of conversations. And that's why we encourage people to get involved in our programs. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about that. Please, please do. Okay. So, um, first of all, we have 215 constituents in our legal program and, like I said, it's a compassionate release clemency. I kind of already went over the legal mm -hmm. program, but we assign the pro bono attorneys who represent them on these motions and see them through. While they're incarcerated, we have the advocacy program. So we have a letter writing guide, okay. which I actually gave you a I, copy you of. You guys gave me some really cool stuff. Thank you. <laughs> and you can see in the background on her camera that there's a, a really cool uh, banner and then also the book regarding, and it shows, it profiles people who have been incarcerated. Yep. It talks about their time in and all that type of stuff. So and this it is really starts neat. with Thank the you. lifers. Okay. Interesting. So, I will go through this. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So we have 18,000 letters that have been written to to our constituents through the letter writing program. Okay. You can find it on our website, lastprisonerproject.org. Okay. Um, we have 70, so we have two uh, programs we have a, that partners, that our partners uh, participate in. So we have... Uh, Sorry, I'm so bad with numbers. I wrote these numbers <laughs> down. We have 75 partners for freedom who have products and donate to us um, a certain amount. And we have four different levels of partnerships. And you can shop with them, buy LPP products um, to support us. Okay. And there's 375 dispensaries who are enrolled in our Roll It Up for Justice program. That, Only one in Arizona. That is, okay. Sunday right. Goods. Okay. Shout well, out Sunday Goods. Shout out to Sunday Goods. I've never thought about that. That's an excellent, excellent strategy. So dispensaries, get your asses on board. These right. are your freaking clients. These are the people that, whose lives you can save. Right. And it's as simple as like at the checkout. Do you want to donate your 39 cents no. to the last prison project? Why not? Or... You know, we, Chiba Hut had something where it was like, I think it was like 50% of the proceeds that day went to Last Pleasure okay. Project. Um, so Sunday Goods, love them. We've distributed $135,000 in commissary. Okay. Uh, 120 people have received commissary payments from us. Uh, as I mentioned, we also author, um, we keep our letter writing guide up to date. That's only for the currently incarcerated constituents. We have a newsletter that we send out to our constituents who are incarcerated, but there's also one for just people who want to get involved and just know about this kind of stuff. Okay. And they can subscribe on our website. Um, we also um, share the stories of our constituents. So, um, like I said, we have the Just Cannabis uh, podcast. It's short form, so they're very digestible, gotcha. short segments. And we have two episodes out of that so far. Gotcha. Um, one of our campaigns, campaigns we're working on is Kevin Allen, who is in Louisiana. He actually got life without parole for $20 worth of weed. $20 worth of weed that he sold to an undercover agent. And also, he was found guilty by a split jury. Which later, uh, they said was unconstitutional. Yeah. But they said retroactively doesn't matter. 
they said they're not going to retroactively go back and correct his sentence. And Governor Edwards hasn't taken any action on his state clemency petition. Luckily, um, a last prisoner project pro bono attorney got him a resentencing. Okay. She filed an appeal all the way up through state Supreme Court, and he does have a resentencing hearing in May. Problem is, under the new law, which is not mandatory, even under the laws as written today, the recommended guideline would still be 20 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. And we're... So he's going to get resentenced. He served, I think, eight years. For and, 20 bucks worth of weed. Mm-hmm. Same thing with uh, Fate Winslow. Fate Winslow got life. Um, it was either life or 25 years, which is basically life to me. Oh, and, and they do, and they do, um, it's, I hope somebody corrects me on this or specifically, but it's it's my understanding that when they say 25 to life, that the 25 years is technically kind of considered a life sentence. So not not obviously, but there's but that can be up to that long because that's a long freaking time to be. Yeah, in prison. I mean, if you look at Richard Delisi, who got sentenced in ninety years, that's longer than most people live. Oh, by far. So when you're stacking on these sentences yeah. that are consecutive, it's crazy. But um, so yeah, we're working on getting we're preparing to go to hearing to get him resentenced now. Um, for our policy team, we've engaged in twenty five states. Um, we've testified in a handful of states. I think it's like five states we've testified in. Uh, we've been involved with uh, 17 automatic record clear- okay. record clearance and resentencing bills. Um, and actually, that's how I got connected with yes, you yes. was Arizona Normal. John Udell yes. connected us. Shout out to John. Love yeah. John. So, um, And then for our reentry, we have given out 364 reentry grants this year. We've distributed two million dollars in reentry resources that's awesome and that's for uh housing department uh transportation (laughs) can't talk uh dependence medical um and then cannabis industry education and our job readiness program to get them ready to go back into the workforce they probably can't get a job in cannabis can i know that I, i don't know specifically um but i don't think you can have a felony on your record and get yourself a either a facility agent or a dispensary agent card. Not in Arizona. Not, not in, in Arizona. Arizona. So, um, and same thing, like, I, so I actually looked into Prop 207 before it okay. came out when I was in law school okay. uh, at Ohio State. Um, I took two different classes. One was sentencing with, shout out Professor Doug Berman. He's my favorite. Uh, that's why I actually work at Last Prisoner Project. Okay. He connected me. And then I... I think he recommended me to take a marijuana policy class where I studied Prop 207 okay. and looked at that. And it's it's crazy, like, if the limitations on criminal record uh, that there are, like, if if you you can't go work for, you know, a, a, you can't, like, start a dispensary or anything right. like that. Right. Um, and it's just kind of education, scholarships, and training to get them back into the workforce. However, it it does depend. I mean, I don't. I'm not familiar with all the states' laws, but I know that here in Arizona, you're right. There are limitations. And it's again, it's just the sort of thing where now, if I get caught smoking it out in public, it's a petty offense. I can go do whatever I want. You know, it's just the sort of thing where we're just going to continue to punish the. I do believe that 
prison is, no matter what the crime is, prison is your punishment. When you're done with prison, you should be re-entered back into society fully and wholly. You have done your time. You have served your, you have served your time. You've paid your debt to society. But at the same time, if we're just breeding worse criminals and my, I have an uncle who did prison time. He goes, he called it gladiator school. <laughs> so it's a sort of thing where if we're just breeding more crime and, and making people worse, this isn't helping anybody. It just right. continues to harm and harm and harm. Absolutely. Totally agree. <laughs> and it's crazy when you look at the collateral consequences, like I think I'm might be saying this wrong, but I think it's like the national center of collateral consequences. If you just Google collateral consequences okay. study or data or something, um, it will take you to a website that where there's studies of all the collateral consequences okay. on licensure, uh, civil penalties, like how things, I mean, some people can't apply if you, I've had some of our constituents who've got charged with marijuana convicted, they can't apply for federal money or federal housing for 10 years. Um, they can't, they can apply for any assistance. And then they're like, okay, good luck. And what do you do? Like, you go back to committing crime. You, you go back, you you sell drugs to, to support your family. You rob liquor stores to support your family. Right. Like, <laughs> it's just crazy. It is really crazy. So, um, and there's 70 to 100 million, million Mar- Americans, can't talk right now, um, who have a criminal record. So that's this insane. is something that's really pervasive. Um, so a lot of people will be familiar with the collateral consequences. Yeah. And I mean- like you said, it can, uh, I think we're not recording yet, but it, it can affect your career. It can affect, you know, being charged or something, or even just arrested. Yep. Uh, background checks, yep. housing. Yep. Even if you're not convicted of something. So that I That stuff actu- never goes away. It's mm-hmm. always there. I actually, so I, I wrote an article that got turned into a book. Okay. And it's called uh, Ban the Box, the Fight to Box Out Employers from... Uh, discriminating on the basis of criminal record i forget the name of my own book but um <laughs> it was a it was a paper originally and it's kind of funny because professor berman was like the sentencing uh professor at ohio state college of law was like you know I, there's no page limit but don't write a book or anything and i literally wrote a book that was a sentence i wrote first class <laughs> sometimes you got something to say yeah and i studied that i studied and i i looked into all the data on that and the these third-party background check companies been verified and all that type of stuff oh my gosh they can just even if you're acquitted of something or you weren't ultimately charged you were just arrested no. and remember in this country it's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty it's supposed to be people can't like they they do they can't get a job or they can't get housing because this thing is on even though the charge has gone away right it's right. still on there yep still on the record and what i recommend that people do because there's no real process for this is either go to a record clearing house just just google record clearing house and then also individually help individually email all the background check companies that your charge could show up okay okay and ask them to take it down okay and Maybe throw a statute in there, make it look more threatening. But so you're asking them to redact it. You're yes. asking you're, you're asking well, you're for information to be redacted. Yeah, to you're, redact de- it. you're demanding it. Yeah, and you're making it like you do have 
you're making it sound like there's some authority behind it too. Of course. That's what I would throw in. Well, the authority should be innocent until proven guilty. Right, exactly. Should be. But they, so they, with, if they become aware of that and you ask them because of the opt out and privacy laws, right. they, they do have to take it off within a reasonable amount of time. And okay. it does take a while, but it's really worth it. And we need, but besides retroactive relief, we need to make it so that, you know, we need to have, these charges need to not be in the system to be sold to a third-party background company. It's all about money. When that charge doesn't stick. Right. If you're convicted of something that's not overturned, it, then I have no problem with that being on the record. But the fact that anything goes, yep. anything goes, arrests, things that got dismissed by the prosecution. The prosecution was like, we don't have enough to prove this case. We're going to dismiss it. That's still on your record and there's no that's why we need auto clearance yep. uh records and we need these retroactive laws and then prospective laws to kind of prevent this from even becoming an issue in the first place um we need to reschedule or deschedule cannabis that needs to happen immediately and it's the <laughs> dea that's gonna that's in charge of that and the problem is too is they get a lot of their funding to go fight cannabis yeah. I'm, I'm working on trying to get a DEA agent in here. I'm also kind of scared to get a DEA agent in here. Yeah. <laughs> like, I won't lie. But it's... Well, they, they can... I don't think they can get you, right? It's Maybe. It's federally <laughs> illegal. True, so, true. So that's... that's the People ask me that, like, on the law enforcement side of the house. I'm like, well, no. A federal agent is not going to pull, make a traffic stop on you. It, yeah. a, an FBI agent is not going to pull you over. A DEA agent is not going to pull you over. If a DEA agent is pulling you over, it's because they're... You're doing something else, and they're there for a reason. So you know they don't get you for speeding. They don't have the authority to pull you over for speeding. Right. So, but we'll it, get them in here. Yeah. No, I'm I'm working on it. Yeah, talk to them. So, um, I just want to say, uh, before we move on, just some of our some people think don't realize how many forty thousand are incarcerated, and they think, oh, do they just get like one year? I mean, two years. It's first of all, one or two years is still. A lot of time in prison. You go try to be in prison for right. one or two years. Oh, it's just two years. Um, and then also, as you could see from our letter writing guide, which is organ, it's sorted from longest sentences to least sentences. We have a ton of lifers. Uh, released lifers include Corvain Cooper, Andy Cox, Horacio Estrada, Elias, John Nock, Michael Pelletier, Richard Delisi, Pharrell Scott, Cornell Hood, <laughs> Fate Winslow. Um, who is deceased, rest in peace. Um, and then we also have um, Guy Tan, so currently incarcerated, Guy Tan Danelli, Rafael I, Hernandez Carrillo, Ismael yeah. Lira, Albert Madrid, Hector Ruben McGurk, Daniel Nunez, Michael Woods, and Kevin Allen, who I was talking about earlier. So I'm just reading this one real quick. Uh, Rafael Hernandez Carrillo. Okay, 2010, age 31, he was sentenced to life without the possible parole for his involvement in a cannabis distribution operation. Okay, so he was obviously, he was probably, you know, whatever happened, yet the drug cartels are making billions and billions of dollars. Bill <laughs> billions of dollars. Yeah. And murdering people. Yep. And they're pretty much scot-free. Yep. It's really crazy, but so... <laughs> Luckily, we've made a lot of progress. We've had 21 people released so far in 2023 um, of our legal constituents. Um, we have gotten the uh, lifers released that I mentioned uh, before. Michael Thompson released from Michigan. Philong Chung was released on compassionate release federally. 
And Luke Scarmazzo, another person, I think he got 25 years, was um, he recently was granted compassionate release. And then we got news today that one of our constituents, Thomas Anderson, is going to be released on Thursday. Very cool. And where, where's he at? <sighs> I think he's at, I don't want to, I don't want to miss, he's federal, gotcha. but I don't, I don't, I don't want to misspeak on, on uh, where his facility is. But it's it's in there. <laughs> on that uh, on that uh, on that note, though, real quick, where do being that it is federal, I keep forgetting that part. Where are most of the people for cannabis convictions housed? Um, or where you know what I mean? We see a lot of USP Beaumont. Well, so a lot of people go to Big Sandy in Kentucky first okay. before they get transferred out. And actually, here in Arizona, there's a federal facility that where the overflow overpopulation goes. Okay. Okay. Um. So a lot of people are at USP Beaumont. Um, a lot of people are in um, Yazoo City. Um, I don't even know where that's at. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm forgetting the names right now. But a lot of these places are um, like these federal facilities, FCI Milan, uh um, Paul USP Pola. Okay. Um, those are a lot of the more common facilities. And then it's crazy because you see in different state or excuse me, federal district courts that are situated in certain states and certain okay. districts, they tend to sentence harsher or certain judges really tend to, when I see, when I'm looking at a lot of the lifers or people who have 15, 20 year sentences, I'm like, I just saw that judge. I was going to say it's probably the same judge over it's and over. It's a lot isn't of it? the same judges, um, and it's it's just outrageous. Um, and you also see that depending on obviously what state you're in, the the harsher sentences. If you're happen to be driving through Kansas, the South or the South, yeah. Um, so there's just a lot of variation. There's not equal consequences, um, and there's too much and not enough discretion because that's it's it's that's a hard one because it was like you were saying with uh you know they need to be able to have the discretion right. at the police level but then when you look at just prosecutorial discretion that's when you see more uh people of color being prosecuted for the same exact crime as white people this is just a theory i do believe that one of the one of the easiest felony arrests that i could have made as a police officer here in the state of arizona was a cannabis arrest. Okay, so you're I'm a I'm a trooper. I'm going about my my work week, and I've made some traffic stops, and I've taken an accident, I've done this and stuff like that. But what makes you really shine is that of a felony arrest. That's like, oh look, this officer had two or three felony arrests this week. It doesn't matter what the felony was, but it's the easy, it's a low hanging fruit, right? And so when you get this low hanging fruit, where prosecutors are going to get a quick you know, they're going to get a quick prosecution. It's going to make their numbers go up. And I know this for a fact here. I have to sneeze. Pardon me. So I'm trying not to. It's it's coming and my allergies are driving crazy. But I know for a fact that some of the prosecutors here in Arizona that have started off in particularly the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, they want their numbers to be high because what they're going to do is they're going to take that numbers and they're going to go to a private law firm. And they say, look, I had a 97% conviction rate. I'm good. So it was more along the lines of making themselves look better and look at the conviction rate that I get. Just give that person, um, just get them convicted. Doesn't matter what the right. conviction is. Doesn't matter the sentence or anything like that. Just get them convicted so it makes themselves look better. The police officer is going to make that arrest because it makes themselves look better. 
You know what I mean? It's just the, the low, this, again, this is just a theory that pulling over people or, or dealing with people from a lower socioeconomic status, as we stated before, they're not going to have the means to go hire the $50,000 lawyer that's going to get them off. It's going to be that low hanging fruit. And I don't mean that, you know, in a bad way, that's just the, unfortunately the way it is. It's going to make that officer look better. It's going to make that prosecutor look better. And as you said, the defense attorneys, the the public defenders don't have the means, don't have the time, don't have the ability. They're overworked. They're underpaid. So right. it's just it's just a constant revolving door. A lot of these are societal problems that, you know, your listeners probably feels overwhelming and like, well, what am right. I supposed to do about right. it? And I would like to talk a little bit about what they can do. That's no, no I was just going to ask, like, how can people like being with Arizona Normal? I know how we can affect changes at the state level, but how can we affect changes across the the nation? Um, so first visit lastpresidentproject.org slash take action. Okay. And that's going to cover what kind of most of what I'm about to say. Follow us on our socials and we write, you know, we, we participate in our amicus briefs, post those. We have a blog. Okay. We have, so. Um, Friend of the court. Yes. In Friend of the court yes. briefs. Uh, inform yourself. Check out our podcast, Just Cannabis. Text FREEDOM to 24365. Sign up for our letter writing guide or check it out on our website. Sign up for our newsletter um, and participate as a partner in our Partners for Freedom or our Roll It Up for Justice campaign. Um, so in addition to just either donating or, or helping us secure funds to operate our programs to help people. Um, there's also things that people can do as far as uh, awareness and advocacy. And they should check out our uh, Pardons to Progress campaign, pardonstoprogress.com. Um, or is it .org? Let me see. It is .com. Okay. Um, and also take part in our campaigns, uh, like the one that, excuse me, hashtag free Kevin Allen, um, ask, whoa, I'm losing my voice, <clears throat> asking to, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, free Kevin Allen, hashtag free Kevin oh, Allen. Oh yeah. Um, writing to governors. So check out our website and, and see our campaigns. Okay. And, uh, there's, you know, what is, I'm like losing it <laughs> where you sign a peti there's petitions, 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 um, there are things that you can share writing and calling uh, governor's offices, participating in our partners progress campaign, writing our constituents letters. Um, people don't realize how much they love that and how much that really can brighten their day. Uh, hearing from people, even if it's just something small, like you're not forgotten. Yeah. Just thinking of you. Yeah. Um, we're going to free you. We're going to get you out. And just knowing that those people, letting them know that they haven't been forgotten and then <laughs> vote, get out and vote. Vote. Educate yourself and elect people that are in line with your value system. Um, listen to more than one news source right. and do you guys have put these out, talks. Do you guys put out any kind of newsletter stating your specifically regarding the voting? I didn't mean to interrupt you. I apologize. Oh, okay. But it was specifically regarding voting. Do you guys put out any kind of newsletter stating these are the types of people that we want to vote in that have our... We no. don't do that because 501c3. Gotcha. Um, we can't. Understood. Yeah, understood. Yeah. I, and I, I, I'm... Normals and five hundred one c four. So we do do that. We go right. through. We go through the constituent or the the list and give it to our constituents and all that stuff. So right. I mean, we do cover on our blog and in our socials like things that officials do. Yeah. Because it's just news 
and we don't really say like, oh, we like this person or we hate this person. Gotcha. It's just kind of where we put it out there. Gotcha. And so just having these conversations, listening to people's stories yeah. and, you know, really engaging in this kind of conversation is helpful as it is. Um, and then taking that additional step to participate in our campaigns and, you know, do something to even just brighten a brighten a constituent, a prisoner, a cannabis prisoner's day. Um, and also, most importantly, in my opinion, is people who are in law and want to provide pro bono legal service uh, services, licensed attorneys and their firms or clinics at law schools can sign up um, on an- NACDL's website or they can reach out to Last Prisoner Project. Okay. Info at lastprisonerproject.org. Or you can ca- uh, Google Cannabis Justice Initiative, NACDL. Awesome. And I'll include all this stuff in the notes and all that stuff. Yes. And we also have a volunteer form for non-attorneys, on our, but that's a little more limited. Uh, the, the need, we just need more attorneys. Yeah. Get yeah. more attorneys to help more resource, you know, more people get out and more resources for us to do the work that we do. Everybody hates attorneys until you need an attorney and yep. then you love attorneys. <laughs> yep. And then it's like, oh my God, I wish I was one. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, that's very cool. And I, I, you have given me an hour and 45 minutes of your time. <laughs> so I'm truly grateful of this. I, and when you and I talked just a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago, I had not even heard of the last prisoner project. I thought it was another organization, but yeah, I, I had never even heard of it. And then I started doing research. I was like, going, this is, this is a really neat thing. This yeah. is very cool. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you so much again for the work that you do and having people on here like me to talk about our work. And, you know, I love that you're looking into the law enforcement, looking into connecting the public with law enforcement and law with policy, policy with incarceration, incarceration with reentry, rectifying the past and continuing harms of this, you know, this country's unfortunate policies and history of cannabis criminalization. Yep. So everything that you're doing is super helpful. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to thank come you. here and speak on behalf of the last prisoner project. And again, I appreciate you coming down here. So thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And we'll see where this goes. And I'm, I'm excited to get this message out there. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Let me turn all this stuff off.